You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. We return this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1, so I invite you to turn in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. A series entitled, Make Every Effort, the Duty and Promise of Spiritual Growth. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to focus this morning on one verse, really one word. We'll read verses 1 to 11. Remind ourselves of the context and the call that we see here in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us are granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we do need your help. Lord, we need your help to even desire to make every effort. Lord, we are usually tired. We are always busy. We are generally distracted. And we bring all of those things with us here this morning as we prepare to hear from you in your word. And so I pray that you would help us now. That you would clear our minds and in souls of these other distractions, in these other anxieties, and these other troubles, and that you would give us the freedom to focus on what you are saying to us right now. Father, if we, if we make every effort in these areas as you call us to, we will be effective and fruitful in our spiritual lives. And we know we have an enemy who desperately wants to see that not happen. And so I pray for your strength and grace right now that we would see the importance, the priority 
of strapping these things on, of making every effort to supplement our faith with all of these virtues. I pray you'd give us wisdom and understanding. You'd give us motivation and strength and power to change. And the result would be our joy in you and your glory in us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're focused on verse 6. Really one word in verse 6. Supplement your faith with self-control. Supplement your faith with self-control. Aubrey and I right now are reading this book together, Around the World in 80 Days. Have you read it? It's an old book, first published in 1873. It's really a pretty fun story. Uh, The main character is an Englishman named Phileas Fogg. Phileas Fogg has wagered half of his considerable fortune that he can travel around the world, again, this is back in the 1870s, in 80 days or less. Everything has to fall in place perfectly for that to happen. Every steamship, every train, everything's got to be right on time. Nothing can get messed up. It's the best possible scenario. He wagers half of his fortune that he can do it. Phileas Fogg is impassable, unflappable, no emotion or no apparent emotion. Setbacks happen, you'd never know. Events come up that you would think have ruined his whole plan and will cost him half of his fortune. His face betrays no feeling whatsoever. He's a man of discipline, order, schedule. He does everything exactly as he means to, exactly when he means to do it. Nothing seems to flap him. He is utterly composed, full of, it would seem, self-control. Well, Phileas Fogg also is traveling with his servant, a Frenchman named Passepartout. Passepartout is a little less self-controlled than Phileas Fogg. He's a great servant, very loyal, but he has some weaknesses. At one point, they've landed after six or seven days at sea in Hong Kong, and he and another man on the boat go in to get a drink. This is what happens. On entering the place, they found themselves in a large room, handsomely decorated, at the end of which was a large camp bed furnished with cushions. Several persons lay upon this bed in a deep sleep. At the same tables which were arranged about the room, some 30 customers were drinking and smoking, all the while, a long red, long red clay pipe stuffed with little balls of opium mingled with essence of rose. From time to time, one of the smokers, overcome with the narcotic, would slip under the table, whereupon the waiters, taking him by the head and feet, carried him and laid him upon the bed. The bed already supported 20 of these stupefied sots. Fix and Passepartout saw that they were in a smoking house, haunted by those wretched, cadaverous creatures to whom the English merchants sell every year the miserable drug called opium to the amount of 1,400,000 pounds, thousands devoted to one of the most despicable vices which afflict humanity. The Chinese government has in vain attempted to deal with the evil by stringent laws. It passed gradually from the rich to whom it was first exclusively reserved to the lower classes, and then its ravages could not be arrested. Opium is smoked everywhere at all times by men and women in the celestial empire, and once accustomed to it, the victims cannot dispense with it except by suffering horrible body contortions and agonies. A great smoker can smoke as many as eight pipes a day, but he dies in five years. 
drugs. We know something today and hear all the time of the opioid epidemic. Passe partout enters this place looking for a drink but ends up drinking too much and then having a smoke and then smoking too much and the story takes a difficult turn after that. He, in that sense, couldn't be more different than his master, Phileas Fogg. You know, we marvel at, envy even, the remarkable self-discipline, the willpower, the self-control of a Phileas Fogg. It's in many ways exactly how we would wish ourselves to be. We deeply admire it. It's a kind of strength, a kind of power. But the reality of our lives is is all too often a lot more like passepartout in the opium den. It's our desires and our appetites and our cravings that seem to possess all the strength and power. We, we want to eat healthy, but our appetite demands french fries and milkshakes. We want to work hard and get a lot accomplished, but our laziness would rather binge watch the latest series on Netflix. We want to honor God with our sexuality, but our lust demands satisfaction now. We want healthy relationships, but our insecurities and and our unstable emotions just keep sabotaging them. We want financial security, but our greedy impulses demand the newest and best, whether we can afford it or not. We want to speak words to the people in our life that heal and encourage and build up. But then our anger creeps in and our words tear down what we're trying to build. We want a healthy and vital relationship with God, but no matter how many times we tell ourselves it's going to change, our busy schedules and our our distracted hearts keep pulling us away from the vital spiritual practices that draw us close to God. Our desires are powerful and and all too often seem like, feel like they're outside of our control. And the result is deep frustration and deep discouragement. We feel at the deepest level of our heart that we're not living the life we want to live, that we could be living. And our natural impulse, and this goes all the way back to the garden, of course, our natural impulse is to blame. You know, if my husband was doing things differently, if my wife was different, that's what's holding me back. And my kids, it's my kids and all the demands they place on me and the frustrations and the anxieties and troubles. If, if my kids didn't stop making life, just stop making life so difficult, I'd be better at this. It's my boss. It's my job. My job's messing me up. Or it's some misfortune or, or mistreatment I've suffered that's keeping me from the life I want to live. A, a disease or accident that I've experienced, maybe a tragedy that I've dealt with, a, an abuse that I've suffered, a, an injustice that I've experienced. And, and those things are real. They're powerful. 
and they impact us in significant and profound ways. But, but we also know people who have overcome much bigger obstacles than we face and are living lives of remarkable joy and peace and purpose. And, and so our frustration and our discouragement comes from a critical truth that we just have a hard time facing. Most of the time, my biggest problem is me. Most of the time, my biggest problem is me. Suppose I'm frustrated with my physical health. It's not a knowledge problem. We know what to do. Eat healthy foods in moderate quantities. Exercise regularly. Sleep more and preferably at consistent times. We know the recipe for good health. It's not complicated. It will almost certainly work. So why can't I stop eating in excess? Why am I unmotivated to exercise? Why do I go to bed too late most nights? What's my problem? There's something stopping me from doing what I want to do. And that something is me. I don't have self-control. Or suppose I'm discouraged about my spiritual health. It's not usually a knowledge problem either. I mean, I know more or less what I need to do. So do you. Commune with God by meditating on His Word in prayer. It's not that complicated. It will surely draw me closer to God if I do. So why do I read sports news instead of the Bible? Why do I watch Netflix instead of pray? Why do I excessively contemplate my next social media post instead of meditating on God's Word? What's my problem? There's something stopping me from doing what I want to do, and that something is me. I don't have self-control. Well, we're not unique in this. This isn't special to us, people in the church, people outside the church, people all over the world, people all throughout history have recognized and felt this problem deeply. For example, I think I read this verse to you last week, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. He says, we know the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, he says, sold under sin. He says, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. There's Paul apostle to the Gentiles, pillar and leader in the early church saying, I don't understand what I'm doing. Because there's things I want to do, and I can't seem to do them. And there's things I hate and don't want to do, and that's what I keep doing. A couple verses later, he says, I know nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's Paul, 2,000 years ago, on the other side of the world, putting a voice to something that we've all felt, something we all deal with all the time. I don't understand my own actions. I know what I should do, and I want to do it, but I don't. And then there's these things. I hate them, don't want to do them, 
but I do. We understand. We more than understand. We feel it. We know what it's like to live like that. We feel that somehow, in some way, we, we just are in control of our own actions. It's a remarkable thing, really. We know how difficult it is to control other people, to get other people to live and do what we want them to do. I mean, suppose you have kids. You spend decades trying to get your kids to do what you want them to do and what they should do. We, we have these ideas that maybe we can control them and lead them into the behavior in life we want them to have. We try to guide them. We try to get them to bend their will to ours. Come here, we say. Pick that up. Stop doing that. Go get this. Don't embarrass me in the restaurant. All kinds of things. And we realize we can't control them. Whether they're 2 or 20 or 50, we can't control them. But we turn to ourselves. Surely we can control us. But often we can't. The word for self-control here in 2 Peter 1.6 comes from the word for power. It literally means in power. Self-control is in power. It's fundamentally about what's in power in your life and mine. Who's making the decisions? Who's calling the shots? Who's in charge? Who's in power? Well, what's going on here? Not surprisingly, God's Word will help us understand. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. We just heard Paul talking about his frustrations and struggles himself. Let's look at what he writes to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 17. This is a familiar passage. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord... You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Paul says, look, apart from God, he says, and this is where you were, people are darkened in their understanding and hard of heart. He doesn't say stupid. He doesn't know what he means. Uh, They might have the intellect, the IQ of an Einstein, but they simply can't see the truth about God. They don't understand spiritual realities because, he says, their hearts are hard. They don't want to acknowledge God, and they really don't want to submit to him. And so they're blinded. Their minds are futile. And then verse 19, he goes on and says, they've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality. They've given themselves up to sensuality. And sensuality is, it's a a lack of restraint. 
that leads to what is often socially unacceptable and morally unacceptable behavior. They've given themselves up to it. It's called sensuality because it's not driven by the mind or the will. It's driven by the senses. A person given over to sensuality is driven by what feels good and tastes good and sounds good and smells good and looks good. A person given over to sensuality is driven by desires and appetites. And he says, Paul says, they've, they've given themselves up to these appetites. That, that, that given themselves up. It's the same word that Judas uses when he talks to the religious leaders and says, um, what will you give me if I give Jesus up to you? If I hand him over to you, what will you give me? And Paul uses the same word here and says, they've given themselves up to sensuality. They've, they've handed themselves over to be ruled by their desires. They've put on the handcuffs, they've tossed away the key, and they've said to their desires, take me wherever you want me to go. It's a way of life. He goes on to say, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Literally, they practice impurity with greediness. Give me more. They embrace sin. They embrace all the basest desires of their heart, and they say, give me more. Why? Because greed for impurity is just like greed for money. You can't get enough. You can't get enough. There's no quantity that will satisfy you. It promises satisfaction, but it leaves you hungry for more. There isn't enough junk food to satisfy your hunger. No one can eat just one. you got to have more. There aren't enough video games or, or digital entertainment that will ultimately satisfy you and give you meaning in life. You always need a little more. Our desires are constantly saying, just one more. Just one more. I'll just have one more. This is the last time. I'll start doing it the right way tomorrow. Just one more. Look, you and I don't decide to live like that. That's the default setting. That's the default setting. That's what life apart from God in Christ looks like. Ruled by our desires. Just one more. Now, you might think, you might be tempted to say, well, why is Paul hating on people outside of the church like this. I know lots of people that aren't Christians. A lot of them are great people and seem to display self-control. But, but Paul's concern here isn't to demonize and criticize people who aren't Christians. As we'll see in just a second, he's really concerned with people in the church here. But I still think Paul would insist, this is how life is apart from God. Governed by desires and passions. Sometimes those passions are base and, and destructive past passions, like passepartout in the opium den, that everyone looks down on and says, that's terrible. 
But often it's much more subtle and much more acceptable. Imagine a man who overcomes his addiction to food and laziness. He starts working out. He starts eating healthy. He goes back to school. He gets a great job. We might say he has self-control. He's, he's overcome his desires for food and laziness and made something of himself. And we could be glad for that. But, but really, he's, he's traded one set of selfish desires for another. His efforts aren't motivated by love for God or concern for God's glory or what God has done. He's just traded one set of pleasures, food and laziness, for another, the respect and esteem of other people. Either way, God is nowhere in view. It's still about Him. It's still for His own satisfaction. And what He'll find is that those desires don't satisfy either. They enslave just as much. Even if it's in different and more socially acceptable ways. Look, driven by our desires and appetites is where we all start. That's default setting in a sinful and fallen world. You don't have to decide it. It's there. Driven by the need to satisfy our appetites and desires apart from God. Some of those desires are embarrassing and socially unacceptable, like being addicted. But some seem healthy and are socially esteemed, like being in good shape. But all of them focus on satisfying my appetites and desires apart from God, for my glory. So Paul goes on in verse 20, and he turns directly to believers in the church. Look at verse 20 in Ephesians 4. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about him, and we're taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness in all holiness. So, so two critical realities at play in here. Two competing desires in the believer. There's an old self. It's, it's how we were born. It's what we start with. It's the default setting. It's where everybody stays without Christ. It's the old me, corrupted through deceitful desires. What makes a desire deceitful? A desire is just a desire, right? It's just what I want. What makes it deceitful? What makes a, what makes a desire deceitful is, is when it doesn't actually and can actually deliver on the satisfaction that it promises. These sinful desires promise us the world and they can't deliver. Uh, the country artist Brad Paisley has a song that I think is fascinating. I don't know that it was ever on the radio. It's a, a song entitled, A Man Don't Have to Die to Go to Hell. Part of the song says this, describing hell on earth, I guess. He describes it this way. It's a, it's a place down by the airport where the girls dance just for you and all you feel is drunk and broke and lonely when they're through. It's waking up to nothing but that stale tobacco smell. You see, a man don't have to die to go to hell. A man don't have to die to go to hell. Well, I don't know how theologically accurate that is, but I take his point. 
Sin doesn't satisfy. Sin and the tempter who tempts us has only hell in mind for us. It offers us heaven and delivers hell. The old self is corrupted through deceitful desires. And Paul says to these Christians, that's not the way you learned Christ. Don't live like that. Don't go back. Don't submit. Don't hand yourself over. Don't handcuff yourself and turn yourself in to your sinful desires which deceive you and want only to destroy you. That's not the way you learn Christ, he says. You've got to put on the new self. Created after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. Think about how Peter described, or Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5. If you're in Christ, you're a, a new creation. There is a new you. And that new self struggles with the old self that lingers there, that lingers, that we are doing battle with, making war with, or we ought to be at least. We struggle with that old self, and we will until we die. And Paul says, don't give in. Don't give in to that. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been recreated. You've been given real spiritual life. Our struggle with self-control is a constant battle between our old self and our new self. Listen, you, you can't fix you. You can't fix you. Apart from Christ, you will be controlled by your desires. The best we can do is hope to trade more acceptable desires for our old, less acceptable ones, but they'll still control us. They still won't deliver. Christ offers freedom, power even, to be freed from the power of our desires. He gives those who turn to him in repentance and faith New life, new power, even, even new desires. He doesn't come to us saying, now you get nothing you want. Follow me and get nothing you want. No, he comes saying, let me show you something much better. Let me show you something much better. He brings us to and offers us himself. And he can really satisfy. He can really give us what we need. We can find in him, in our relationship with him, the joy, the freedom, the satisfaction in life we crave. In fact, we can't find it apart from him. And in the meantime, we struggle. Our new self knows it. And we fight against the old self that keeps trying to drag us back to these old things. There's real power here in Christ. You think about probably the most well-known place that self-control is talked about in the New Testament is Galatians 5. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Self-control is something God is working in His people by the power of His Spirit. So any self-control we have isn't finally a testimony to our own power, but God's power, His own Spirit working in us and through us. So so we must work, strive to grow in self-control. Paul says, put off the old man, put on the new. But the work and the glory for it ultimately goes to God. And we get joy and freedom in life. So, how do we grow in self-control? How do we move forward in self-control? Well, there are tons of books, tons of podcasts. There's almost no limit to the resources that you can find out there on tips and strategies and research on 
and we call it self-control or self-discipline or willpower. Let me give you this morning just four suggestions uh, drawn in part from Ed Welch's great essay, Self-Control. Here's the first. Remember the grace of God. Remember the grace of God. Titus 2, Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I also say the grace of God has come, bringing salvation, training us to live self-controlled lives. Self-control should be a response to the grace of God in Christ. See, God's call to holiness and self-control isn't a call to a less satisfying life. God doesn't come and say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will make your life even less joyful. Now, now the enemy wants us to believe that's the case. Because it always hurts to say no to things we crave. Jesus comes offering life and that abundantly. But we have to remember God's grace, both his past grace in the cross and also his future grace. Because as Paul points out here, we're waiting for our blessed hope. The ultimate vindication of God, our joy in God, the ultimate satisfaction of our desires will come only in fullness when Christ returns and brings us to be with him. And so we keep our eye on that superior joy, that superior grace, that still future grace, knowing that when that day comes, we will regret, we will regret no self-control or self-sacrifice in this day. There will be no regrets on that day. We remember the grace of God, both what he's done for us in the past and what he will do for his people in the future. Here's the second thing. The first was remember the grace of God. The second is think before you act. Think before you act. Consider the outcome of the choices you make and the impulses that you have. When I give in to this desire, where does this lead? Don't deceive yourself, and all the great irony of that expression, deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself with, well, just one more. How many times have you said that? Hundreds of times. Just one more. I'll start tomorrow. This is the last time. And you didn't start tomorrow, and you had many more, and it wasn't the last time. Think before you act. Consider the outcome. What we need is wisdom. We need God's wisdom. We need God's help. And God's wisdom is found to us supremely in a person, Jesus. We need his wisdom. We need to draw close to him in his word and in prayer to receive his wisdom, his strength, his encouragement. Think before you act. Three, 
live within boundaries. Live within boundaries. How we chafe at this. We long to do what we want when we want to do it. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Let me say that again. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. See, in the ancient world, in biblical times, a city without walls was unimaginable. Why in the world would you leave yourself so vulnerable, so exposed? You're bound to get plundered, bound to be looted, probably conquered, maybe destroyed. Now, of course, walls wall you in. They provide constraints. Things are more difficult. Can't come in town just anywhere. You've got to go all the way around to the gate. But they protect you. If you're going to grow in self-control, you need clear boundaries. You need walls. Not, not vague sentiments. Clear boundaries. There are just things that you don't do. There are just places you don't go. You don't want to be legalistic about it, but you almost do. If I don't want to cross that line, I may make for myself another line right here. I'm not going to make a line for you. That's not my job. But I may make a line for myself right here. You remember a couple years ago, um, there was a lot of talk in all sorts of circles about uh, Vice President Pence and his he, sort of the Billy Graham rule. Right? He just won't be alone. Won't go to lunch. Won't be alone with a woman who's not my wife. Oh, and he took a lot of heat for that. Some of the criticisms were interesting and worth thinking through, but I'd hardly fault a man who says, I... I'm not going to fall into adultery if I'm never alone with a woman who's not my wife. I'm set up a wall. I'm not going to make that wall for you, but he'd make it for himself. You've got to set up some boundaries. I don't go there. I don't do that. I don't want to cross that line, so just to be safe, I'm not going to cross this line. Because I know if I cross this line, it's kind of downhill from there. And it's going to be a nuisance sometimes. And it's going to be frustrating, and other people probably won't understand. And I'm not going to make this the basis of my theology, and I'm not going to force it on you, but I need some boundaries. We read earlier in our service about Joseph. Joseph serves in the household of Potiphar in Egypt, faces temptation, plenty of opportunity. What does he do? He flees. I'm going to stay in this environment. This is the kind of environment you fall and ruin your life in. And he goes to prison, and what's the very next thing it says? And in prison... God gave him great success because he was with him. Live within boundaries. Number four, get help. Get help. Welch says in his essay, he says, you know, here's here's a measure of your seriousness. How serious are you about self-control? Here's a good measure. Do you have a clear and public strategy? Do you know how you're going to deal with this temptation and this desire? And do other people know how you're dealing with it too? Or do you, do you aim to do it all on your own? If you don't have a clear strategy and no one else knows it, odds are you're not going to have much success. And odds are you're not nearly as serious about it as you should be. The 
Where do you struggle with self-control? I know you do. I know I do. I could list I could list a number of areas. In fact, just the other morning when I was typing this first part of this sermon out, I was sitting at McDonald's and uh, my empty tray next to me, typing away, and I had been confronted just an hour earlier with a decision. Do I eat my normal breakfast that falls well within my diet? Scrambled eggs and bacon, which that's good, good breakfast for me. I'm happy with that. Or do I go with the bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit that comes with the hash browns and twice the calories? Well, when I got up in the morning, my intention was scrambled eggs and bacon because that's the right decision. But as I stood there looking at the menu, and later as I sat looking at my tray with the ketchup for the hash brown still on it and my bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit wrapper, I thought, I got a ways to go. And you do too. So we don't need to pretend because we all know we need help. Not always in the same areas, although there are many that will be common to all of us. Peter says, supplement your faith with self-control. If you do, it will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. I don't want to be ineffective and unfruitful. I don't want that for you. You don't want it either. If we're going to do that, we got to strap this on. Self-control. we got to take it seriously. So here's what I want to encourage you to do this week. Identify one area where you struggle with self-control. You're probably already thinking of one. Pray. Strategize. What those boundaries look like, oh, there's lots of stuff. There's lots of things you can read, listen to that will help you think through helpful boundaries. But set some. And then enlist help. Listen, you, you won't want to do that. You won't want to. I don't want my wife to ask me what I have for breakfast every day. Because then I've got to start being more careful with what I have for breakfast every day. But if, I, but if I'm really serious about growing in self-control, or whether it's what I eat, or whether I exercise, or what I allow my eyes to see, how I deal with temptation. What, what, if you're really serious about it, and we should be, you'll enlist help. This is what I'm praying about. This is what I'm concerned about. This is my plan. Will you help me? Make every effort to supplement your faith with self-control uh, that we might be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of Christ. God, I pray that you'd help us. This is so hard for us. We, we really want to grow in self-control, and we really don't want to give up the things we crave. And so, Father, if we didn't have you, we, we really wouldn't have a chance. We really wouldn't have a chance. We might trade some desires for other ones, but we'd still be dominated by our deceitful desires. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in him, in the new life, that he gives us, we really can have victory. We really can grow. We really can find that you, by your spirit, are, are controlling us rather than us and our flesh. 
So, so what I pray this morning, Father, for me and for every person here is a real earnestness, a real seriousness about the sinful desires over which we need self-control. Father, we, we need to see the gravity of our sin. How it is against you. How destructive for us and for our relationships. And we need to strap this on earnestly, wholeheartedly. Lord, help us to see and to know that, that what you lead us into, leading us away from these sinful desires, will not be a loss for us. It will feel like a loss. Help us to, help us to know that it's not that it actually brings us to freedom and to things that really matter and can really satisfy us in you. So I pray that you would do this work. Father, I pray there, there are people here whose sinful desires and lack of self-control owns them and dominates their life and discourages them and defeats them and probably messes up their relationships, their marriage, their parenting, their work, all sorts of things. Father, we all feel a little bit, but I know there's people here, Father, whose who's lack of self-control, lack of self-control feels like it's ruining their life. And so I pray for them great grace, great hope I pray that you give them wholehearted commitment to seek you and find freedom and victory and joy in you I pray in Jesus name Amen well thanks for coming this morning it's been, been good to be here together let me encourage you again, if you're coming to Together Group tonight, and I, I encourage you to come, we're looking forward to it. Um, if you do have kids, let me encourage you again to just let us know how many kids you bring in um, so we can plan for that. I send you out with these words of benediction, Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And there we go with words and meditations that are acceptable to our God. God bless you. Have a great day.